Thank the Lord that he has freed us from that guilt, right? And it's by the grace of God. Let's talk about some of that grace, that goodness. Head in our Bibles to the very last two chapters of your Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. As we continue and kind of wrapping down a series that's on the future events, what we want to talk about is the ultimate future in eternity. I was reading an account of an individual that um, that some of you may have read in history. Juan Perón was president of Argentina from 48 to 54. And during that time period, he was very popular with the common classes. And his wife was extremely popular. And part of that reason is she was an actress, a beauty queen. And he had married, and there was a few years apart from her. But during his tenure as president, he uh, she got cancer, and then she passed away. And he was so broken hearted by that that what he decided to do is he wanted to keep her near him. So he spent $100,000 and he had her mummified so that she could be well preserved. And she was then put on public display after a year of preparation. She was put on public display and she would even show up at state dinners and things of, of that sort. Well, what happened was he was ousted suddenly and he had to flee the country and go to Spain. And when he was ousted, he didn't have time to take his body's casket corpse and those things with him. And his enemies got a hold of her. And what they did is they didn't want her to be a rallying point for any type of um, Peronist re-revolution. So they took and hid her body and her casket for a period of time and then they buried it. Now let's fast forward 19 years. Nineteen years later, one of those who buried the body went to Perón and told him, because he thought you'd want to know where your wife was buried, told him where. So he had people go back and they dug up her casket, they brought her to him in Spain, and when they opened up the casket, he says, oh my, she, she looks like she's alive. Well, he acted that way for the next three years. He had her body along, he had a third wife, she agreed to it. They had the body at mealtime. They had the body in the living room. And the, you know, when they would entertain, she would be one of those who would be there. I find that odd. Okay, maybe, maybe I'm the oddball. But then, but then again, there's a whole new type of thing going on that's called extreme embalming. You familiar with it? Okay. It's becoming popular in some parts of the country where you can embalm the person and then what you can do is keep them around for a while. Okay, and you can put them in positions and places that kind of seem kind of natural. I find this odd. I'm sorry, I just think. But uh, just to clarify who's the dead people in the picture, the guy with New York up in the corner, he's the band who's passed away. Uh, this picture of different people standing by the palm branches, the guy, the man, is the one who's passed away. And, you know, it's just... Yeah, I agree with you. Okay, that's just, you know, get rid of me. When I'm done, just get rid of me. I, you know, I'd hate to think that I'm standing behind this pulpit when I'm just... <laughs> can't imagine that. Can't imagine that. You know, as a believer in Christ, I understand, and we do a lot of different funerals for people, I understand the aspect of honoring the person and remembering the person and things of that sort. And I understand the grieving process and going through when you lose a loved one and things of that sort. On the, and then on the other hand, as believers, we should be looking forward. We don't want to be living in the past. We need to be looking forward. And the Word of God encourages us by the forward look that we should make, telling us how great our future is. As a believer, we've got something to really look forward to. 
In fact, in describing it, Paul wrote these words, Eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. We usually stop there and say, heaven is going to be beyond anything that we can understand. Do you know what the next phrase reads? But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. God has told us what the future is going to hold. He wants us to know so that we have hope, so we have comfort, so we can move forward. And so the Word of God gives us a lot of the information. In chapters 21 and 22, it tells us what eternity will be like. After he's talked about, you know, the future of this world and the difficulties and the tribulation and Jesus' second coming and Jesus' kingdom on earth, then he talks about what will eternity be like. And chapters 21 and 22 gives us a lot of details and tells us a lot of what that eternal future will be like. We looked at it last week and we point out just a few things. We pointed out that everything that we know of this world today, it's going to be destroyed. We pointed out that everything in that, new, in that eternal phase, a new heaven, a new earth, it'll be made new. So that's why we're encouraged not to be stuck in what's here because it's going to be dissolved. There's going to be an entirely new heaven, new creation, new earth. It's going to be filled with God's radiant glory. We pointed out last week that some things will be familiar. There are going to be some things we're used to, streets, cities, housing, different things of that sort. But there's going to be a whole lot of things that are going to be different, and everything will be far better, far better than what we understand today. So we, we went through some of that, and understand there's another feature that becomes a major feature in this section of Scripture. It's the New Jerusalem. In that description, we have an extended part of Scripture that tells us about the New Jerusalem, that we need to take time and say exactly what is it like. Follow along. I'm going to read some portions out of chapter 21. I'm going to start with verse 1 and 2, then jump down. I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Go down to verse 11. Having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And, he had, and it had a wall, great and high, and twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lies four square. The length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of them are equal. He measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was as of jasper. The city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardinox, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprasus, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was one pearl. 
And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And there shall be no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amazing. He tells us about an actual city that is descending out of heaven, coming toward earth. Where exactly is it landing? We don't know. In fact, we don't know from this text if it actually sets on the new earth. It just says it comes down from heaven. Could it, as some think it's on earth, or some think it's hovering slightly above the earth in the sky? We don't know. We don't know some of those things for certain. But there's a city that somehow we're going to be able to go in and out of it. And so it's going to be close enough to earth where people are going to be traveling as well. John gets this vision from an angel who says, hey, this is fascinating, and John's going to describe. And he's used to, living in around 100 AD, he's used to cities with gates and walls. So this, this fits everything that he's, he's um, understanding. And so in this vision where the angel takes him to a great high mountain, he's able to look down on this city, and he describes it with a lengthy description so it's important to us to understand it. God, God intended for us to get some of this detail. And as he's giving the description, John is at a loss for words. He uses a lot of like or as. He's just, it, it is so indescribable. Paul wrote, he says, when he saw heaven, things that weren't even lawful to speak about. But here the curtains roll back. John gets in. What does he tell us about this city? There are several factors to just look at quickly. One is it's built by God makes it very clear, this is a city built by God. He made the statement, from God. The city that comes from God. And in, the, and in the original, there's an emphasis here, this is from God. This fits exactly what the book of, the writer of Hebrews wrote. The writer of Hebrews wrote, wrote down how Abraham looked for a city whose founda- which had a foundation whose builder and maker is God. Elsewhere he wrote, you are come unto Mount Zion, under the city of the living God. This complements what Jesus said. When Jesus says, I am going to go and prepare a place for you. This city is made by the hands of God. Therefore, this city is unlike anything man has ever made. It's amazing. It's God made. Something else that stands out. It is a city that is beautiful. He uses something that most every one of you will understand. When he says that his first glimpse of the city as he sees it coming down from heaven, he says it's like a bride prepared for her husband. Which we understand. That when you've seen weddings, you've, you've been in a wedding, many of you are married, you were part of it, or your kids were a part of it, or some part of your family members, and you've been to a wedding where when the bride comes in, you know, where does that groom look? He's fascinated. He's enamored. He's in awe of how beautiful she is. That's the sense of this text, is that this, this bride, this city, is going to be captivating and draw our attention as if we, looking towards the bride, we can't take our eyes and look at anybody else. In fact, when he describes the city, the materials he uses, that he says that God uses to do it, he says it is our very best that we know of. 
And it is absolutely going to be glorious. It's going to be glamorous. In fact, he talks about the gems. And I want to clarify something for some of you may have different translations from the one I just read. When he talks about the walls and the city like Jasper, Jasper is a, actually a transliteration from the Greek. The idea of Jasper is that what they did is they took letter for letter almost and then they made this word Jasper. Actually, the stone that is described in the original language of the Iaspis that is a diamond. And he's saying that this is brilliant like your greatest of diamonds. And he goes on and he starts describing the city as I've already read it, a city made of gold, gold that is clear as glass. And he describes the 12 foundations. Again, I don't know if the foundations are like our foundations. Like here, our foundations go the outskirt of the building. And they are laid, you know, whatever foundation could be side by side. Or is it a solid slab and then another slab and then another slab? I don't know. Okay, neither do you. None of us know exactly how they're laid out. But he says that these foundation layers are decorated, garnished with a variety of different gems. And then he lists out those various gems as you go through. Now those are what we understand from the ancient Near Eastern era, the, what those words are. These are the colors of the stones of that time from other writings. So you look at it and you go, wow, this thing is like a rainbow. And it's going to be radiant. And it's going to be glowing from the inside out with the glory of God. You know what, it, what you just can't help but think? Some people think that God is bland. God is boring. That if you serve the Lord, there's no, it's just kind of like, uh, everything's monotone. Our God is colorful. Our God is creative. Our God is just, he's, he's amazing. He's amazing. And even what he decorates, it's beyond anything that we can imagine. It is just glorious. So we have the first description built by God. We have another description that is beautiful. We have a third description in this text that is brilliant, that it's bright, that it's radiating. I mentioned this somewhat last week, where we mentioned having the glory of God in her light, like the stone most precious, even a diamond, clear as crystal. We mentioned that his idea is that this is brilliantly shining, like the kind of glory in the Old Testament, that pillar of fire that led the Jews in the wilderness. You know, that idea of, of Jesus on the mount that all of a sudden when he radiated his glory. Like when the Apostle Paul was still Saul and Jesus appeared to him where he gets converted in Acts chapter 9 and he says that Jesus shone brighter than the noontime sun. So we have this brilliant light that's coming from in. And it's interesting that the word that he used where he says her light, her radiance, her star-like quality. Same word used in Genesis 1 and 2 talking about the light bearers. That this is just something that is as bright, as brilliant as the sun or the stars. So this city is just absolutely magnanimous. It's wonderful and it's got this jasper and it's got the clearest crystal. Just radiating brilliance that comes through this city. And then that leads us to where we were last week. There is no need for the sun, for the moon to shine, for the glory of God will light this city. He said that again in chapter 22. We didn't read it today, but you can gloss down. It says, there shall be no night there. They don't need a candle. They don't need med-ed. They don't need any electric company, for the Lord God gives them the light. And so we have this, this idea of this brightness. And you and I pause for a second and say, okay, what does sunlight do for us? What does it mean to us? When we have several days of rain and all of a sudden the sun comes out. When we go through the winter season and it's been cold and finally, and finally we hit summer. Okay, Finally we get the warm weather. What does that mean for people when spring comes up? 
And you and I understand this. You and I understand that when we talk about sunlight, we talk about warmth and comfort and hope and growth. We talk about things coming to life. We talk about the idea of after a dark night and things are, are difficult and it's like the, the middle of the night and all of a sudden the dawn comes and we're encouraged. That idea that spring comes up and there's the promise of life. That's what we will be experiencing all the time. The seasons don't go into a season where things die and things deteriorate. We're going to have a spring-like freshness feeling in this city because of just the radiance from that city. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. But the city is also very big. That's another, you just can't help it, but get the feeling that this thing is Texas size on steroids. It is just absolutely just beyond description. When, when we start talking about that idea, John is going to say, okay, it's like any other ancient city. It's got gates, it's got the different dimensions to it, and it's got the, you know, the cube or the pyramid shape, and there's three gates on each side. And he talks about how he's given a measuring reed. And this measuring reed is basically a tape measure that he's given to measure this city. And then he goes on and he talks about the size of the measurement. And if we make it into what we understand in modern day, this is roughly just under 1,500 miles in every direction. 1,500 miles is a pretty big city. If that city were to sit on the states, it would take half the United States. One city. You know, this, this is an amazing. The world has never seen a city. Never. Never has. As great as, as Antichrist will say his new Babylon is, it'll pale in comparison to this city. But again, its maker is who? It's God. And so it'll be just this magnificent size. I mentioned this about three weeks ago, just to give you an idea of measurements by our days. If there was a tower built in the middle, middle of the United States and you want to see it from California or from Delaware, Jersey, the tower, because of the curvature of present Earth, would have to be 300 miles high to see. So on a clear day, you could see it 300 miles. How high is the New Jerusalem? It's 1,500 miles. This city is going is, is to be... Uh, it, it's going to take up the horizon. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be this light that would draw people to it. It's just fascinating how he describes it. Now, some of you would sit here and say, wait a minute, this doesn't seem possible. We've never seen a city this, this size. How could anyone build a city this size? My first response is, anyone doesn't build it. God builds it. So for God to make a city this size, yeah, I mean, he made the earth with just a word. So he makes this city. And some will say this, and some authors will say, well, this has got to be an exaggeration. This can't be real when he gives the measurements because nobody's seen a city this side, size at all. So this idea of 1,500 miles, nah, can't be. It must be some writer's exaggeration. Now, wait a minute. Why, why do you conclude that? Why do you conclude that when he writes these words, that he says in verse 16, that he measured it 12,000 furlongs, and everything is the same, the breadth, the height, whatever. Why do you conclude that that's a mistake? Why, do you think, why would you conclude just because it's beyond your capability of building something that big, therefore it can't be? I look at it and go, wait a minute, there is, ex- is very specific details and numbers given. There is no reason why to deny these numbers at all. 
They are very specific and he says according to the measurement of man. So he's making it very clear this isn't a heavenly measurement that is different. You know like here in the States and in Europe we have different measuring systems. He's saying this isn't a different measuring system. This is according to the measurement known at that time. And then he makes a comment he says and it's even of an angel's measurement. Now, I understand how you and I can mismeasure things. We might mismeasure the window for the AC. We might mismeasure, you know, cutting a board. I don't think the angel is going to make the same mistake. And John is saying, what I measured is the same thing that the angel measured. And so it's, uh, it's roughly 1,500 miles, 1,482 to be exact. And so he says that this thing is, is exact. Now some of you who are more involved in science would say a city that big would throw the world into chaos in its orbit. It would, it would disturb the tides and everything else. And how do we respond to that? Well, obviously the first answer is it's a new earth. It's a new earth. Okay, the Bible clearly says it's a new earth. Who said that the new earth is going to be the same size as this one? It could be bigger, it could be smaller. Okay, it could be, to, it could be totally different. Okay, we don't know. And then as well, you know, we don't know if this city is suspended above the new earth or right on the new earth. We also don't know if the new earth will do rotation like it does now. We don't know that. You're assuming everything continues as it always was or so, so through history. That may not be the case. This could be a case where God changes the laws of nature as we know them. We know he's got to change the new creation to some degree. We know that there's no seas there. And if that means no seas, no oceans, that means the new earth is not going to have the same type of purging system and, and um, uh, temperature control system as it does now. Because our oceans and all that, they help balance, they help take care of this planet. If there's no oceans, it's going to be totally different. Could there be a change in the law of gravity? There could be. Do you remember Jesus with a new body? He could even go through solid matter. So there's going to be some suspension of what we know today in this new heaven and new earth. To what degree? I don't know. Neither do you. But it could be totally different. So it's not a problem if this city is, so, is, is as large as what it's described. It doesn't, it doesn't create any difficulty. But it's big enough that if you want some space, you want to get away from it all, in the city if we're given equal areas to go to, for just like less than five of you will have all of Lebanon, the size of Lebanon County for yourself. So you will be able to get away from it all. Okay, you'll have opportunity to have privacy if you want it. Then we look at it and go, wow, this thing is absolutely huge. Now it needs to be huge because we are told who's going to be living in it or at least commuting regularly within the city. We are told in the book of Hebrews that it says, you believers are come unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly, to the church of the firstborn, to the spirits of justified men made perfect. So apparently all the angels are dwellers there. All of those who are part of what we call the church. Everybody else who was justified, that would be believers in the Old Testament, the tribulation. 
This is all, as he said, all the saints in this text, or all the saved, literally, is the word he used in this text. So it's of people from all generations, all time, who are believers, along with the angels. That's a good amount of people. That'll be a grand amount of people. And so we're there in that city that he says is huge, not only in its size, but he talks about the walls. The walls of this city are absolutely massive. That there, there's the foundation stones that are massive. They don't mean a whole lot to us until we get an idea of what were the, what were the foundation stones like when they built Jerusalem's walls. Okay, they did some excavation. They found some from what era, I'm not sure. But remember, excavations can keep on going because there is different levels over the years. But just get a glimpse of the foundation stones in one sector of the old Jerusalem. They're massive. And so these foundation stones that they're talking about in the new Jerusalem are these massive stones beyond this description. Like I said, do they go the perimeter of the city? I don't know. Do they go underneath the city layer by layer? I don't know. But it's a massive site. And he talks about them that these, these foundation stones are having the names of the apostles written on them. Remember that. We're going to come back to it in a few moments. The apostles' names are written on it. Then he talks about the gates. The gates are individually, there's 12 of them, and each of the gates is a single pearl. Now at the gate, he describes there's going to be an angel at each gate. Do you remember the angels in the, old, in the Bible, throughout Bible times? Whenever people saw angels, they usually fell down. They were just, they were just um, enamored. What's, a, what's another word? They were dumbfounded. They were, they were at awe at the angels. The angels are the ushers. They're the greeters. They're the people who say, you can't come in, you can't go, if they're guarding it. Which I don't think is their job because there's nobody to guard against. But rather, I think their job would be, hey, welcome. Can you imagine an angel welcoming you to church this morning? That would have made your day, okay? It's good to see you, and they call you by name. And you're going, whoo, whoo, you know, turn it off a little bit. You know, you know, can I hit dim? Okay. This angel's there at the gate, welcoming you. Each one's a single pearl. Now, there are some who suggest that these huge pearls serve as a purpose. They're a reminder. I don't think that... that you know, this is extreme or, or beyond comprehension when they talk about it. It makes sense to me that a pearl is actually a gem that comes from suffering. You all know this, right? That when there's an irritation within that oyster, then he just puts chemicals around it, and it builds up, the chemicals build up, and he forms a pearl. And so to get rid of the irritation, the suffering, the pearl is the result of it. Well, we think this through, and you go, okay... The entryway, a gate is an entryway. The entryway is brought about by suffering. Well, that makes perfect sense. They remind us of who? Jesus Christ, the way into heaven, who made that way by suffering. So those gates may be a reminder to us every time we go in and out. Jesus died for me. Jesus did this for me. Which would make perfect sense. So we got this city built by God. We got this city that's beautiful, brilliant, big. Can I add another B? It's bountiful. It's bountiful. In ancient days where John ministered for a period of time, the city of Ephesus, it was considered the most productive, prosperous city of the Roman Empire. The reason they said that is Ephesus had something unique that nobody else had. They had, their main street was marble. 
Everybody else was just common stone. But Ephesus, to show their affluence, to just portray how great and powerful and rich they were, they, you know, they made it apparent. They made marble streets. Well, the city of heaven is just amazing. We got the best gems for the building materials. Throughout the city of gold, okay, he talks about the, what we consider pavement, tar, and common cement, God's got so much of it, it's gold. Gold streets. It's amazing. It's amazing the bounty. In fact, if you look at, oh, what verse is it? Um, where does he mention the, the measuring thing that he uses? Oh, there it is. Verse 15. Look at verse 15. What is the tape measure made out of? It's a golden tape measure. Now, wouldn't you like to have that? Okay. Your Stanley is a golden tape measure. Okay. Here he is. He's saying, this thing is just, it's, it's just permeated, which means there's no poverty here. There's no, there's no want in this place. There's no lack and then when he describes it a little bit further, he describes that there's no more curse. We looked at it last week. So productivity will abound. Okay? Which means as well, there's no drought, there's no famine. Okay, watch the news. Different parts of the country, different parts of the world. There's people going hungry. There's people that, that are running out of you know, clean water. Uh-uh, not in this city. In this city, when he describes it, he talks about how there's a pure water. And he makes it very, very clear. Verse 1 of chapter 22. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, no pollution, okay? Proceeding out of the throne from, the, from God and the Lamb. And he goes on, makes it very clear that this is going to be providing. There's no end to it. So here we've got no thirst that's taking place. He goes a little bit further and he talks in the next verse about the fruit. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river there's a tree of life which bare twelve manners of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing. Can you imagine John living in 95, 100 AD? Can you imagine the words every month, what that meant to him? Living in a time period that you had crops growing from the springtime until harvest season, and then what did you have? You either stored them up, or you're going to starve. They didn't have the fridges. They didn't have the marketplaces. They couldn't go during a snowstorm to, you know, get, you know, snowstorms coming, let's go get our bread and milk, you know, and eggs, and let's buy off everything on the shelf, including toilet paper. Let's get it all stocked up. They didn't have that, okay? They didn't have those situations, you know, where, where they didn't even have what we have. They either had a store up. Can you imagine the words to John when he wrote, every month is a new crop? Wow. Every month. There, there's no lack. There's no, there's no stockpiling. There, it's just absolutely putting up. Now, some of you are already thinking ahead of what I've read. You've seen the next phrase in that very verse that says, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And right now you're thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. If he's talking about the healing of the nations, that must mean there's diseases. That must mean there's death. And there's the possibility of it. Oh, do we have a contradiction in the Bible? No. No, not at all. Not at all. Understand that, number one, it's been very clear in the text already, there is no death, there is no disease, it's gone. Then what does he mean by the healing of the nations? Going back to the original tongue, the words that it was written in. He uses the word therapia. What does that sound like to you? 
therapy. Okay, same. Therapy doesn't mean, okay, it doesn't have the idea that you're, it, it could, but it doesn't always mean you're sick or you're dying. Some of you do a regular therapy. You take vitamins to sustain. Some of you have the therapy of sleeping every afternoon for a certain time as therapy. Some of you do it from about 11 o'clock on Sunday morning until about noon, okay? And I help you by keeping quiet, okay? We have different therapies, different regimens. All it means is sustenance, strengthening. It doesn't mean that there's, a, there's deterioration. It just means that there's sustaining. And so for the healing of the nation, some way, somehow, how this operates, I don't know. But there's the different fruits that are available for the sustaining of the peoples. And so we have in this text that there's, there's no want, there's no empty, there's bounty. There's just bounty galore, like never seen before. So we got built by God, beautiful, brilliant, big, bountiful. It's busy. It's busy. I've said it a couple times. I'm going to keep saying it because the overriding comment that I run, hear from people about heaven is that I look forward to heaven, but I'm kind of afraid I'm going to get bored in heaven. You know, I'm kind of, you know, I've just retired and it's been a couple years and I've got all the projects done after two years and I've got to look for things to do. And I'm afraid that in heaven I'll be hitting my 20 millionth year and I'll, what am I going to do tomorrow? Oh man, what am I going to do for the next million years? I've already tried this, that, the other. It's going to be a place that's busy. It's going to be busy. The reason I say that is we have to answer the question, what are we going to do in heaven? Some things, again, that we won't do, we won't be tempted by sin, and there won't be that type of preoccupation. To me, this is one of the best parts of heaven, is to be done with temptation. Just to be done, okay? I won't get hangry anymore, okay? I, I won't get irritable anymore, okay? That'll be done. Yes, okay? Then the other part is I don't have to go to the doctor anymore. Yes, yes, yes. Okay? Won't have any of the health issues, which, remember, think of the typical person who's, you know, 80, 90 years old. What is their major activity? Okay? Going to doctors. So when you're a million years old, you know, it's like, oh, all I do is go to the doctors all the time. It won't happen. It won't happen. Now, I'm glad because... I was reminded about how wonderful this will be. This week when we got home from work, Deb went and got the mail, and she was, you know, she picked it up, and we were kind of circling through the, the area around our house trying to have conversation. And I, she said, I got the mail. Okay, anything in it? Yeah, there's a letter for you. What? There's a letter for you. And we're still going around in circles like this. And finally she spoke loud enough that I could hear on the third time. I said, I can't understand you. Stop mumbling. And she said, there's a letter for you. And she started laughing, and she handed me this letter addressed to Wayne Burgraff, my address, from Enhanced Hearing Solutions. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't have been better timing. It just couldn't have been better timing. That just isn't going to happen in heaven. That we have to, what? Okay, any more type things. So... The, other, the flip side of this, we won't be able to do just whatever we want to do. I don't want to. 
I don't want to, you know, go to work. I don't, which, okay. You know, we're going to have structure. There's going to be structure. But the beauty of what we know we're going to be focusing on is verse 5 of chapter 22. In chapter 22, if I've got the right, right verse, oh, I'm sorry, verse 3. The end of verse 3, it says, his servants shall what? Serve him. Now, some of you go, oh, church every day of the week for millions of years. Oh, is Burgraff preaching again? <laughs> How do we serve God? When the Bible talks about serving God, is this the only thing we do for service? Yes, no? Do you serve God by going to work? <laughs> You're not convinced at all, are you? <laughs> is your work service to God? It is. Teens, is going to school, the answer is yes, I'll tell you beforehand, okay. <laughs> by going to school and doing your best, is that service to God? Moms and dads? Yes, thank you. Okay. Is service to God doing hobbies? It can be. It can be. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the can, can doing, doing, enjoying music, playing music, can that be service to God? Sure. Can you writing poetry, can that be service to God? Can you reading be service to God? Can your visiting with other people be service to God? Yeah, but your focus is, I want to be doing it for the glory of God. We're, that's our problem is sometimes we get distracted and we're doing it for just ourselves or just to please somebody else, not the Lord. But he says we're going to be focused this time that our, the, the bulk of what we're going to be doing is we're going to have it all together where we're going to be serving God. We're going to be busy doing things. Now some have asked the important questions. Does that mean we will sleep in heaven? Okay. Now I'm going to answer it this way. I don't know. Okay. There's theological answers on both sides. Some say no. We're not going to ever sleep. And their reasons are there's no more night. Glorified bodies will be like Christ. We aren't sleeping. We serve him day and night. Worship is done day and night. The light never goes off. Okay, there's no night here, no need for candle. So it would be like Alaska in the middle of all the sunshine 24-7. Okay, and we're going to be so active serving God we won't need to sleep. That's possible. Then there's others who say this. Yes, we're going to sleep. The reason that they think we're going to sleep is we rest from our labors. Hebrews 4 is all about eternal rest. And Jesus in his glorified body, did he eat? Yes, he did. So does that mean, you know, why should we not rest? Okay. I don't know the answer for sure. And so, yeah, I don't know. But I do know this. Whatever the answer is, we're going to be fine with it and we won't be irritable. Now, this never happens in your home, but I think most of you know a coworker or a boss that doesn't get their sleep. They get grumpy. Okay, somebody outside of you. Okay, that won't happen. In heaven, we won't get hangry, and we won't be irritable, and just say, I didn't sleep well last night. So, somebody was snoring too loud. Okay, that's going to be gone, those excuses and those problems. So what will we be doing? Food for thought goes this way. 
that the, the words in chapter 21 and 22, there's similarities to the original creation on earth. There's a tree of life. There is good health. There was no curse at that time. There was no death. Uh, they were told to work. And they had fellowship with God where they could walk with God in the voice of God walking with them. And they heard it in the garden. They hid themselves. So the, the parallel is that, well, if that's the case in that, like, original creation, maybe the new creation will do a lot of similar things Adam and Eve did. That seems reasonable. If that is the case, we know we're going to worship. We know we're going to fellowship with God. We know we're going to serve the Lord. We know we'll sing to Him. But Adam and Eve enjoyed the environment. Adam and Eve had dominion and rule over the environment. Okay, that was before the fall, when everything was perfect. There, they learned, they expanded, they explored, and some say that those two phrases, that they shall bring their glory into the new Jerusalem in chapter 21, is that as people, as they build, as they develop, as they learn, they will bring this in and give the glory to the Lord with those types of modern, new technologies, new advancements. Um, we mentioned we'll be singing. We'll be visiting and interacting with others. We know that there's that fellowship, getting along with, that's probably the biggie. We'll get along with everybody, okay? We'll be bringing, going in and out of the city, because he talks about that aspect. There's probably some form of eating taking place, which for some of us, that's heavenly, shady maple with no weight, no worrying about pounds. That makes it glorious, okay? Will enjoy God serving us. Read the parable. Talks about how the master will serve the servants in glory. And this aspect that people often do this. People will say, oh man, it's a shame somebody passed away and they missed out on da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. When it comes to getting to heaven, okay, we don't go there and miss out on anything. When we go to heaven, we're going to do everything that we've ever thought of, one, two, that's within the will of God. It's going to be a place where we're going to be experiencing stuff like never before. Man, do you, do you ever have any aspirations of if you could, you would? You know, if I had the time and could handle it? And I, I assume this. I would like to become a musician. That's going to take me 50 million years just to figure it out. For some of you, you do it in 50 minutes. But for some of us, there's a lot to be looking forward to in heaven. There's going to be, there's, it's going to be absolutely amazing. Let me conclude with this. Any of you ever struggle like you don't fit in? You know, do you remember some of us had this experience? Some of you, it never happened to you. You have no clue what I'm talking about. But I remember experiencing quite a few times in elementary school being the last person picked. And being the one that the other team wanted you go to the other team. You know, they didn't want me on their team. It was who got stuck with me. And not feeling like, just don't fit in. It, it happens sometimes where some Christians say, I don't feel like I'm important to God. I don't think God really cares about me. I don't think God notices me. You know, does God really know I even exist? I look at somebody across the, the other side of the church and, man... They've got everything together and their kids and their marriage and they don't have any problems. And I pray to God, God, just help me get through a day. And I don't even know if God hears me. 
Can I give this last idea that is, is alluded to multiple times? Heaven is a place of belonging. Heaven is a place of belonging. The reason I say that is this. Do you remember, do you remember Jesus' last supper? He tells them, I'm going to go away. They're brokenhearted. We want to go with you. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Philip's response, Lord, if you're going away, show us the Father. Let us get a glimpse of God. Just give us a glimpse of God. You know how, how we say it? Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. Could, I have, could you just send an angel? Send somebody to tell me, why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening to my family? Why, why are we having, you know, we take three steps forward and we go five steps backwards. Lord, why do I have these trials, these troubles? Why did you make me the way I am? And Jesus says to Philip at this moment, he says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I've revealed the Father to you. Think what Philip is wanting, what you want, and what heaven will be. He describes heaven as a time of complete fellowship. Look at again at verse 22 of chapter 21. No need for a temple. Why? We don't need a temple. We don't need to go to church. There's no need for it because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple thereof. If I can, if I can illustrate, explain it this way. When, um, when I grew up, my parents lived at a place on Walnut Street. They moved to Fulmer Street. Then they lived on Highway 13. And then when I graduated, they moved to another place near Fish Lake. And I don't even know what the address was other than by Fish Lake. And then years later, they moved to Owatonna, Minnesota. And they live in Rosewood Street or Lane. I forget which one off the top of my head. And so there was multiple different homes. I never lived with mom and dad in like the last two homes. Never lived with them because I graduated and then never went back except for vacations. And yet, when I thought about going home, uh, though I never lived there, Rosewood is home. Fish Lake House was home. What made it home? I never lived there. What made it home? Mom and dad. Where mom and dad were, that's home. It's not the house. It's the, it's the people. Your father is in heaven. Your heavenly father makes it home. And he says, I will have communion with you so much and so available. I will leave the gates open so anytime you want to come. You can go in and out anytime. It's not closing. I don't have hours. I'm not shutting for COVID. You don't have to worry about a mask. You can come in anytime. Now, you and I have that opportunity to do it right now in prayer. But then we can do it face to face. Every one of us, any one of us, there we will have that moment where night and day we can come and talk to our Father, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We will have no sense of comparison, feeling worth, worthless compared to some of you. There will be no feelings of, does God really care for me? It's going to be absolute certainty 
and sense of, I belong. I'm where he wanted me to be. I am with my creator, and I will belong here without shame or embarrassment or hesitation. A sense of belonging like never before. The reason that it's heightened in this passage is because later on in the text, he says in verse 1, it's coming like a bride coming down. He makes that comment in verse 2. He calls it, and we know, we mention it. Okay, the reason he uses bride there is because oh, the groom standing here sees the bride and, you know, enamored. But then later on in the text, watch what he does in chapter 21. Um, look at verse 9. There came unto me one of the seven angels who had the seven vials in those judgments. He talked to me saying, come hither, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And then the next verse it says, he carried me away in the spirit and he showed me what? Some people say, oh, he's going to show him the church. The church is the bride. If, if that's true biblically. Ephesians 5, the church is called the bride. And they say, well, that means then in this text he's showing the church and the church is the only ones in heaven. Then what do you do with the Old Testament believers? And if you look at the text, how it unfolds, this is my understanding of it, he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven. In other words, he's calling the city his bride. Why would he do that? We're his bride. Yeah, we are. We are. In fact, if you go through the Bible that there is times in the Old Testament that he called the Israel his bride. There's times, like in the New Testament where we're living now, we're called the bride. And there's a marriage of the Lamb. In this passage, he calls the city his bride, and that's not unusual. He did it in the Old Testament where he called Jerusalem his bride. But you and I know exactly what he's talking about. You and I understand this. When he talks about the church, is he mean the building or the people? The people. Okay. When we talk about the United States, do we talk about the land, you know, the way it's formed, or we talk about the peoples of the nation? Typically, we're talking about the peoples. So when he's talking about the bride, he's talking about a place, but what deserves his focus? the people. The people in it. And he's using it as a, as a reference, as a term of not trying to divide theologically and make something that we're going to argue about for all, you know, for these days of who exactly the bride. His point is, this place called the bride, everybody in it, they're mine. I'm committed to them. That's, by the way, that's what marriage is. Marriage, when people say, I don't want to be married to this person anymore, don't you realize? The feelings are, are great and good, but marriage is a commitment. The, the real part of marriage is commitment. Because all of us who have been married any length of time, we understand there are some days we don't feel so loving. But we're committed. So this idea we fell out of love, no, you just fell out of committing. And being obligated and doing your duty and working through. What Jesus is saying in this text, I'm committed to this entity. That includes everybody who's dwelling therein. I'm going to protect them. I'm devoted to them. They're mine. In fact, he goes on and makes this comment about how much he values you, 
by saying further on, verse 22, verse 4, they shall see his face and what else does he do to you? His name what? They're going to be on your foreheads. Oh, wait, wait, you know, when we, when we think, what's that mean? Well, when we're excited about something, we kind of show it. Fans, we display it. You know, we're all about this team. Well, God is excited about you, and he's going to show, show his excitement. He's going to say, this one's mine. That one's mine. She's mine. He's mine. And I'm going to put my name on him. Think of that, that whole series of Toy Story where the character, the cowboy through the whole thing, almost every one of the different 300 different movies that they did in this thing, almost every one at some time in it, the cowboy's going to look at his sole of his, foot, uh, of his shoe, his boot. Foot, boot, and shoe all together was, was foot. <laughs> okay. He's going to look at the bottom and he's going to see the boy's name, Andy. And it always brings him back that he and Andy have a unique relationship. All the way through that theological cartoon. (laughs) God putting his name on you is saying, we got this you and me. You're mine. I'm not ashamed of you. You belong to me. And I belong to you. It's a sense of belonging. Like we'll never have experienced in this life. But it goes a little bit further. What about fitting in with other people? Well, we're all saved, so we never have conflicts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in your dreams. Okay. In this one, what about our difficulties? It is going to be harmonious. Do you remember, I asked you to remember, whose names are on the foundation stones? Who'd you have? Okay. Whose names are on the gates? tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, what was your biggest friction within every one of the epistles? Which groups of people? The Jews and the Gentiles. But in this time, they will be built together in such a way that there is harmony between all the Gentiles represented by the apostles and the Jews represented by the names of the tribes. There's not going to be any of that conflict. There's not going to be any of the prejudice. There's not going to be any of the ethnicities that go on. In fact, my friend, the reason that you and I put up houses with walls is our privacy, our security. We won't have walls that are painted and things. We live in a city that everything is transparent. We don't need to have separation and secrecy anymore. You say, I don't like it. That's because you've not been glorified yet. I'm with you on this one, okay? But I understand that in heaven, there's going to be such harmony. It's going to be like when mom and dad stuck all five of us boys in one bedroom. And we didn't have a problem with us all being together in that one bedroom while my sister had one bedroom all to herself. Okay. (laughs) We are going to be all the boys in one room. And we'll be fine with that. We'll be fine with living with one another, being close to one another. So if we're going to get along there, we might as well take a practice shot and get along now. It's going to be a place of belonging. It's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be great. You know, when Columbus died, they built a statue, and it's still standing in Spain. Spain hasn't torn down his statues yet. But Columbus, when he died, they put up a statue for him. 
And what's really unique, they wanted this to be picturesque of Columbus and his impact. They put up the statue, and he's standing on the globe, and on the globe is wrapped a banner with what was Spain's motto before Columbus. And Spain's motto, you can see the the wording, the ne plus ultra, basically nothing beyond Spain. Spain is it. But after his, his travels and exploring and opening up the new world, they put then that statue where there's a lion pulling the N right off of that motto to say there's more beyond. There's more beyond. My friend, let, let your eyes be opened and see there's more beyond this life. There's much more beyond. And that should help us to live for the future. And I close with these questions. With that which is beyond, do you know for sure that you will be there? Not everyone will be. He makes it clear. Not everyone's going to be allowed into this heaven unless your name is in the Lamb's book of life. Do you know for sure? Do you absolutely know? The Bible says these things have it written that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know? May I ask another question that goes a little bit further? What have you done this week to help family and friends, classmates? What have you done to help them to know? What have you done? What have you shared? Uh, can I ask a further question? You know, in this time, there's going to be rewards. What have you been doing for serving God now so as to laying up your treasures in the future? What have you been doing? How serious are you? This is where we will be. We will be in this place in a million years from now. And we will be spending millions and millions of years there. That is where real living is done. Make sure you're prepared for it. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. And if you're here this morning and you are not sure you're on your way to heaven, I want to give you that opportunity to be sure. While your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we have some of our staff headed to a side door of the auditorium, to the right of the auditorium, where some of the kids went out before. And you are more than welcome, while I just pray, to just get up and go and meet one of those men, one of those ladies there, and they will show you from the Bible how you can know for sure you're on your way to heaven. You just go see them. They'll take you to a private room and they'll show you, according to the Bible, here's what you need to do. You don't join our church. You make no commitments to us, but you develop a relationship with Jesus Christ and we'll show you how. Go ahead and do that right now if you'd like. If you are listening at home, feel free to call us. Contact us. We'll have somebody stop by or somebody give you information to show you how you can be sure. Children of God, those of you who absolutely know you're going to heaven, have you told anybody of late? Have you been working towards this end? Sending your real retirement package ahead of you? You ought to be. You ought to be making those investments in eternity. Father, thank you for the attentiveness of these folks. Thank you for the hope that this passage gives us. Help us to be focused on the real future and to be encouraged when we go through difficult times like we face now, this week, this month. Thank you for grace. Thank you that it's removed our sin and our guilt so we know that we can be with you one day in heaven. Thank you for building this place for us. And thank you that we'll be together with family and friends, but greater yet, we'll be with you. Until that day, help us to honor you to the best of our abilities, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.